how important is a name? Well, if it's your name, it's really important, right? You care about your name. You want people to know your name. They want people to call you by your name, to use your name well, because your name is closely connected to you, to who you are as a distinct and particular person. But a name is not just the letters you write on a name tag or sign on a dotted line. A name can also stand for someone's reputation. You can make a name for yourself. Or as Proverbs 22 says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. A good name there is not one that rolls off the tongue, right? A good name stands for a good reputation, a name that people associate with good things. And Proverbs says that having such a name, having such a reputation is better than having lots of money. But when it comes to the name of God or the name of Jesus in particular, it's easy to have a mistaken idea of the significance of the name. Now, is God's name significant? Absolutely, it is. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments says that we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. But His name does not have some kind of magical or mystical power as though simply saying it, or saying it enough times, somehow makes something happen. God is not controlled by those who pronounce his name, and Jesus is not obligated to answer everything we ask for in prayer just because at the end of it we say, in Jesus' name. That's not how it works. And there were a group of men in the book of Acts who learned this the hard way. In Acts chapter 19, Luke tells us, some of the itinerant Jewish Exorcists. Now let me just stop right there because that's a, that's a mouthful by itself. These were Jewish men who were not followers of Jesus. So they were not Christians. They were Jewish men who would travel around. That's what itinerant means. They would travel around to different towns casting out demons from people. They were exorcists. So there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists, Luke says, who undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So in other words, what they were doing, they were coming to someone who appeared to be uh, oppressed by some kind of demonic spirit, and they didn't know Jesus, they weren't trusting Jesus, but they had recognized that people like Paul, who did follow Jesus, miraculous things seemed to happen around them. So they would say to these evil spirits, in the name of Jesus, that, the one that Paul preaches, come out of that person. They were trying to use Jesus' name as some kind of incantation, right, or weapon. It says seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the man who was oppressed by those demons proceeded to attack them and beat them and run them off. What happened was they tried to capitalize on the name of Jesus without knowing Jesus. They tried to wield 
his name like a weapon, like an incantation. They tried to access his power simply by pronouncing his name, but it doesn't work that way. Jesus' name is not a weapon. Jesus' name is not a stamp you put at the end of your prayers so that Jesus will answer them. But if that's not what his name is, and that's not how it works, then how does it work? What is significant about Jesus' name? How should we think about it, and how should we use it? That's what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people repent of their rejection of Jesus, and they are baptized in Jesus' name, publicly proclaiming that they now belong to Christ. They recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, and this is the birth of the church. Now you have a church there in Jerusalem, uh, a body of believers who are worshiping Jesus, who are fellowshipping together, who are caring for one another, who are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to prayer. And in chapter 3, we get a specific story now of what is happening uh, as Peter and John and the other apostles continue to preach, continue to minister, and we see the significance and the power of Jesus' name. Let me read for us Acts 3, verse 1 to 16. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now we were told at the end of chapter 2 that the believers were attending the temple together, that they were devoting themselves to prayer, and we get a specific example of that here in chapter 3. Where Peter and John are going up to the temple at what Luke says is the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. They counted their hours starting at 6 o'clock in the morning, so the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This is a time uh, that was devoted to prayer, and Peter and John are going to the temple at that time. Now, we don't know if they're going there simply to worship, if they're going there because it is a time for prayer and they're going to pray, or if they're going there because they know there will be a crowd there and perhaps an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Probably it's all of the above. And as they go to the temple... There's a man who is brought to the temple every day uh, who has been lame from birth. And so not somebody who was injured later in life and can no longer walk, but a man who's never been able to walk. Um, it reminds us of the man in John chapter 9 that Jesus healed who had been born blind. Right? It's one thing to heal somebody whose eyes have stopped working. It's another thing to heal somebody whose eyes have never worked. So here's this man who's been lame from birth, and he is daily taken up to the temple where he sits at this particular gate and asks for alms. That is, he asks for people to to give him money, to give him uh, donations, right? Because he, he can't work. He has no way to provide for himself. And so he's dependent upon the generosity of others. And the temple is a great place to go and ask for alms, right? Because people are going there to pray, they're going there to worship. And all through the Bible, God makes it very clear that those who worship Him should also be generous to those who are in need, should care for the poor, should care for widows, should should be generous giving people. So it makes sense that if you need people to be generous to you, you would go to a place where they're reminded that God wants them to be generous Right, so that they might be generous to you as they're going up to the temple to pray or to worship. So that's what he's doing. And no doubt as crowds of people are walking in and out of the temple, he's trying to make connections with as many people as possible, asking them for alms, asking them for gifts. And as Peter and John walk up, he asks to receive alms. And it says in verse 4 that Peter directed his gaze at him, right? So he, he kind of zeroes in on this man, and John does too. And he says, look at us. Now, probably this man is, you know, his head is on a swivel, right? He's trying to, who, who's, who's going to be willing to give me something? He's, he's not, you know, looking at John and following John all the way in. And so he's asked for alms, and then he's probably gone on to looking at the next person who's walking by. But John and Peter have zeroed in on this man, and they say, look at us. And so he looks, thinking, okay. I'm about to get a gift. I'm about to get something. Which, of course, he is, but not what he expects. But Peter says to him, essentially, I don't have any money. I don't have any gold. I don't have any silver. But then he says, what I do have, I give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He takes the man's hand, lifts him up, and he's healed, and he begins to walk. Now, what, 
what is happening here? Why, is it just because Peter said, like, could you and I go walk up to somebody and say, you know, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, and just like, because we said it, it's going to happen? Like, is that, is that how it works? That, that's not how it works. What is happening here? What is going on? Well, Peter and John, remember, are apostles of Jesus. They've been designated by Jesus to represent him. And one of the things that's going on in the book of Acts, remember, is that Jesus is continuing to work through the apostles. After his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. But Luke says, in the gospel, I told you about everything Jesus began to do and teach, implying in the book of Acts, I'm going to tell you what Jesus is doing and teaching now, how he is active now. So he is at work through his apostles, through Peter and John. And when they speak to this man, right, and tell this man, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, they are using the name of Jesus, not like some kind of, you know, magic word that if you say you get what you want. Instead, Jesus' name here stands for who Jesus is, his power, his character, his compassion. The name of Jesus represents Jesus. And this is how the name of God works throughout the Bible. For example, in Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's, That's just another way of saying we trust in God. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. We trust in God. We trust in His name. We trust in His character. We trust in who He is. We're not dependent upon, we're not trusting in our resources, our prowess, our ability to save us. We're trusting in God to deliver us. Or Proverbs 18, verse 20, which says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Right, that doesn't mean if I just stand here and say, Jesus, 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 nothing can hurt me, right? Like, as long as I'm saying the name, I'm protected. That, that's not how it works. That's like a mantra or an incantation. That's not how the name of Jesus works. What does it mean to say his name is a strong tower? What it means is God's character is unchanging. He is stable. He is steadfast. He is trustworthy. And like a strong tower that I know will protect me, if I'm trusting in God, I know I have a sure defense. He is the place. He is the person. He is the one in whom I find refuge and strength. That's what it means to use his name or to call upon his name. The power is not in the name itself. Did you know that in the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth is not the only person named Jesus? There's more than one person with the name of Jesus. It's actually a pretty common name. It comes from the Old Testament name, Joshua. It's a common name. Still today, there are people named Jesus. So it's not like the letters that make up the name that contain the power. The power is in Jesus himself, who he is. He is the one who is mighty to save, powerful to heal. It's not the word, but the person. There's no one 
like Jesus of Nazareth. There's no name greater than his because he is God who became man for our salvation. He has power unlike any other because he is God in the flesh. Now, when Peter says this to this man and the man is healed, this happens in a very public place at a very public moment. There is no more public place in Jerusalem than the temple. And it's the hour of prayer, which means they're not the only people there at this time. And so when something like this happens, you know it's going to draw a res- a create a response and draw a crowd. We see the response of the man uh, in verse 8, right? It says, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God, which is exactly how you would expect him to respond, right? Never been able to walk before. I'm not only going to walk, I'm going to do a little jig, right? I'm going to leap, I'm going to dance a little bit, I'm going to be praising God because this is incredible, this is amazing. And someone who's at the temple, day after day, asking for alms, never been able to walk, the people who come here regularly, they know this man. They, they know he's been here for years. They know he's never been able to walk. And so when they see him, verse 9 and verse 10 says, right, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. So they know something incredible has happened. So the end of verse 10 says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is not the kind of thing you see every day. And there was no denying that something miraculous had happened. So they were in awe. They were amazed at what was going on. And uh, they, of course, wanted to know what had happened. Wanted to know what the explanation was for this. So verse 11 says, While he, the man that had been healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This is just a part of the temple. So you have this crowd of people, this mass of people who are now surrounding Peter and John and this man who's just been healed. And so what do you do now? The the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels, they were never ultimately about drawing a crowd. What were they for? They were, of course, for the person who was in need. They They were... Jesus' expression of his mercy and compassion to those who were hurting, who were suffering, who had lost loved ones, right? He, he healed the lame, he opened the eyes of the blind, he raised people from the dead. He did that because he loved them and he cared for them, he had compassion on them, right? But it wasn't so that a bunch of people would show up and start following Jesus around. He was not merely trying to gather a crowd. So what was the purpose of performing a miracle like this? What did Jesus do with it? Well, the miracles were meant to reveal something to us about Jesus and about his kingdom. The miracles reveal something about Jesus because they show us who he is. Right? A miracle like Jesus walking on the water tells us that he's in charge of creation. Right? The, the, the wind, the waves, the sea, they obey him. He can walk on the water if he wants to. That's the kind of thing only God can do. The demons have to obey him. Why? Because he's Lord. He's God. They are under his authority. His miracles reveal something about him. 
but they also reveal something about his kingdom. Jesus is saying through his miracles, look, when when my kingdom comes in fullness, it's not going to be like this anymore. You're not going to be sick. There's not going to be demons messing with you. There's not going to be death. There's not going to be people mourning and crying. No more funerals when my kingdom comes. Right? That, that's not how it's going to be anymore when Jesus comes back. That's what the miracles are for. They are to reveal the truth about Jesus and about his kingdom. So what are the miracles for now that Jesus is gone? Jesus is not physically present on the earth. Of course, he's spiritually present, right? But he's physically, he has ascended into heaven where he's seated at God's right hand. But he's working through his Church and particularly working through his apostles. So what are the miracles that they are doing in the book of Acts? What are those miracles for now? Same purpose. They are still revealing something about Jesus and revealing something about his kingdom. And one of the things they are revealing is that even though Jesus is physically absent, he is still present and at work. He is still powerful, he is still mighty, and he still cares about those who are in need. Peter is about to draw attention to the fact that Jesus is the one who performed this miracle. And part of what he's going to say is, look, you thought you got rid of Jesus, but you didn't. He's alive, he is well, he is reigning, and he is at work, and he healed this man. You're going to have to reckon with that because you rejected him. That's part of what the miracle is for. So Peter uses this miracle and the crowd that it draws as an opportunity to preach about Jesus, to tell people about who Jesus is. He doesn't use it to draw attention to himself. right? He doesn't use it just to draw a crowd. Isn't this great? Look at all these people who are here. No, he uses it to point people to Jesus because that's what the miracles have always been for. For people to come to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. So here's what he says in verse 12. He's got this crowd, and so he speaks to them. He says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He says, You think I did this? You looking at me like... You're impressed with me? Do you think think I have some kind of special power and I healed this man? Do you think it's John and I's piety, our our godliness, right? We're we're just so godly that we have some kind of power that normal people don't have and we healed this man? No. That is not how this happened. That's not how this works. We did not do this, Peter says. So who did it? How is this man now able to walk? How do you explain it? Well, he says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, right? The God we have always worshipped, the God we have learned about in what we now call the Old Testament scriptures, the God who spoke to Moses, the God who made promises to Abraham, the God you know, or at least claim to know. That God glorified his servant Jesus. The word servant there is a word that Isaiah often uses for um, the the coming Messiah, for the Savior. So he says, God glorified his servant Jesus. He's exalted him. He's lifted him up. He's honored him. 
He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So here's here's the problem you guys have, Peter says. God looks at Jesus and he says, that's my faithful servant. That's my son. I honor him. I glorify him. I exalt him. What did you do with him? You demanded that Pilate crucify him when even Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. When even Pilate wanted to release him, you screamed for his crucifixion. You rejected the one God has honored. That's the same message he was giving on the day of Pentecost, right back in chapter 2. He goes on and says in verse 14, he says, You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So you took the Messiah and said, no, thank you. I'd rather have a murderer. He's talking about Barabbas, right? Pilate said, I'll release one of these guys. How about I release Jesus? They said, no, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Well, Barabbas, Peter says, was a murderer. You would rather have that guy than the one who is actually your Messiah, who is actually your Savior. Not only that, he says, verse 15, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He was not just a great man, not just a a faithful servant of God, not just a a great prophet. He, He wasn't just like another Moses or another Abraham or another David or something like that. He was the author of life, the giver of life. You exist, you live because of him, and yet you killed him. You rejected him so thoroughly that you had him put to death, even though he's the one who gives life. But guess what? Again, God's verdict was different than yours. God raised him from the dead. And Peter says to this, we are witnesses. We are bearing witness to the fact that God raised this Jesus from the dead, whom you rejected and had crucified. Now, all that is leading up to what he says in verse 16. Before he explains how this miracle happened, he wants them to reckon with who Jesus is and how they have responded to him so far. So far, they have rejected Jesus in the most deliberate and profound and wicked way they possibly could. But he wants that to change. And so he reminds them of what they've done. He tells them plainly what they've done. And then he says, okay, you want to know how this miracle happened? You want to know how this man was healed? I'll tell you. Verse 16. And his name, that is Jesus' name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. There are two things Peter is emphasizing here when he explains how this healing took place. One is the name of Jesus, and the second is faith in the name of Jesus. You might say, well, where where was the faith? Like, who, who had faith in this story? Well, clearly Peter and John have faith. But I think what he's talking about here, and it's, it's not you know, spelled out for us, but I'm, just, I'm proposing this. I, I think this is right. I think he's saying 
that the man who was healed, I know he's saying he was healed by Jesus, and I think he's saying he was healed by Jesus in response to his faith in Jesus. You might say, well, when, wait a minute, did I miss that part of the story? Like, when did that happen? Okay, think, think about it like this. When Peter addresses this man back in verse 6, right? And this man's asking for alms, and Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold. All right, if your whole purpose of sitting at the temple is to get silver and gold from people, you need alms. You can't work, you can't support yourself, you need that. And someone comes up to you, at the hour of prayer, this is the busiest time. This is when all the people are coming. This is my best chance to get some help. And someone looks at you and says, hey, I don't have any money to give to you. Okay, well, you're on to the next guy then, right? I'm not paying attention anymore. But Peter says, I am going to give you something. And he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, at that point, most people in that man's position I suspect would say, you're wasting my time. Get out of here. They would scoff. They would move on to something else. Not interested. Right? I mean, if you're in this man's shoes, and I walk up to you, and I say, you know, in the name of John Pitts, stand up and walk, you're like, what? dude, get out of my way. I need to talk to other people who have real things they can help me with, you know. When he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and takes his hand, and that man stands up, that, I believe, is an act of faith on that man's part. I don't think this was the first time that man had ever heard of Jesus. Lots of things had gone on revolving around Jesus in Jerusalem over the last couple of months or so. I doubt that name was foreign to him or new to him. Again, I'm sort of reading between the lines. This is my proposal. I think this makes the most sense of what Peter is saying in verse 16. What faith in the name of Jesus was connected to this miracle? I think the man responding to Peter's words in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. I think his response is the demonstration of his faith. So what happens is this man hears from one of Jesus's Apostles, one of his representatives, Jesus is willing to heal you. Stand up. And the man believes it and stands up and is healed. And so what Peter says is, the way this man was healed is the Jesus whom you rejected, whom you put to death, God raised him up, God glorified him, God exalted him, he's at God's right hand right now and he is still working And he healed this man. When this man heard the name of Jesus and heard that Jesus was willing to heal him, he believed it and Jesus worked and that's why he's walking right now. That's what took place. So, not only is Peter saying, you rejected Jesus, but God raised him up and I saw it. He's also saying, you've all crowded around us to try to figure out what happened to this man. I'm telling you, Not only were you wrong about Jesus, but Jesus is still alive and Jesus is still at work. So you got some reckoning to do. That's not just a decision you made in the past that you can walk away from and say, well, we we got that wrong. We got Jesus wrong, but life goes on. No. Jesus is now enthroned in heaven and he's still offering salvation, but he's also going to come one day to judge. 
right now you're on the wrong side of that line, you need to think about how you responded to Jesus. So that's what he tells them. The miracle is telling them that he's still at work. The miracle is telling them that he is the Messiah. The miracle is a fulfillment, even, of a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, that revolves around the ministry of Jesus, not only in the Gospels, when Jesus was physically on the earth, but even still, now, in the book of Acts, when it says, Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. What this miracle is saying is that that day has come, in part. We see it in the ministry of Jesus, and we see it in the work of his apostles after him. And it will come in fullness when Jesus returns. Right? So there's, there's some healing now, but there's full healing coming later. That's what I mean when I say it's being fulfilled in part, but it will be fulfilled fully Later, when Jesus returns, when God brings the new heavens and the new earth, then is going to come to pass the words that John heard in Revelation 21, when it said, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what the fullness looks like. So what this miracle does is it shows us that there is hope, that there is healing, that there is restoration for those who call upon the name of the Lord, for those who trust in Jesus. Not necessarily physical healing now. right? Sometimes Jesus did that. Sometimes the apostles did that. But never was their message primarily about physical healing. Instead, their main message was about turning from sin and trusting in Jesus and following Him. Their main message was about receiving forgiveness from Jesus, salvation, eternal life from Jesus. They did not call upon people to trust Jesus to heal them but to call upon Jesus to save and forgive them. The healing will come in time. But the miraculous healings that Jesus and the apostles performed, those are not the point. Instead, what they do is they point to the greater healing, the salvation that we receive now, and then the full healing that will come later for all those who do trust Him now. The full healing comes when there's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. So what's in a name? Both more and less than some think. Less than those who think that the name itself has power and that they can wield it whether they know Jesus or not. But also more than those who think that that name is, Jesus' name is just like any other name. You throw it around and use it however you want. No. No. 
This name is our refuge. This name is our strong tower. Faith in this name can bring healing. Calling upon this name brings salvation. Not because the name itself has power, but because of the one we name, Jesus himself, who has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's pray.